Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. And who knows, maybe one day you'll be on the show alongside myself. Um, I am really pleased to say that joining me on today's show on what is another warm summer morning here in the capital is Susanna Cole. Susanna is a property investor and heads up the Good Property Company Limited, a Bristol-based real estate company, which also boasts a successful YouTube channel. Um, Susanna, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. And then let's keep doing good work, eh? Exactly right. It's all we can do in the context of the current climate, isn't it? And I think a good place to start would be by addressing that, the context in which we're having this discussion. Um, Just for the listeners, we are recording this podcast in late July 2021. So restrictions at this point have all but gone in England, but the pandemic is still very much sort of lingering over as like a dark cloud. Um, Susanna, um, going back to sort of March 2020, when really all of this started with that first sort of national lockdown to what extent has the covid situation affected you and your business because it's had some serious ramifications for the property sector but not all bad yes not all bad but i think you can kind of divide it into the initial shock where um you are facing potential very difficult changes the fast changes you need to make in a business when you're you're looking at an unknown situation and trying to get the data in to understand how long the situation might be and what might happen. And then, and then oddly, the silver lining, uh, when you've implemented changes that may have been exasperated by the situation. So in the early days, I actually shut my office down uh, about a week earlier than we went into our national lockdown. I think we were March the 23rd. And I think I was about March the 10th. I thought, guys, I don't want you guys coming into the office anymore. And mm. um, and and we have, if you like, two or three businesses. We had three businesses. We closed one down. And um, we had a live teaching business, which of course we couldn't deliver on. So we delivered on Zoom instead. We had a, a we have and had a online business where we teach people very high quality property. And then of course we own and have done a lot of property deals, and we own a fairly sizable portfolio. So in the early days, everything was unknown. Um, there was a lot of um, media speculation and suggestions that tenants wouldn't need to pay rent or shouldn't pay rent. And that was quite an interesting place to be, <laughs> being a, I'm the recipient of the rent. And of course, I have mortgages to pay. Um, and of course, our live events, we didn't know how long those would be shut down for. Uh, and I was looking at data. Actually, the data I looked at was the 1918 Spanish flu. And I looked at, of course, you you try and gather in lots of data, but the data Mm. I particularly gathered in was the National Geographic um, lengthy essay about the 1918 Spanish flu, which suggested it would be a two-year period. So once I'd got that in my mind, that's what I decided. We're in this for at least two years of significant change. And so you Mm. could put a time frame on it and then make the changes. 
And it's been a period of much change, hasn't it? Um, we've seen people adapting at an unprecedented scale to things like flexible working models. Um, we've seen sort yeah. of people rallying together, getting over a lot of initial anxiety. And through sort yeah. of leading through particularly the early days of the crisis, um, I can imagine that sort of mental health and well-being amongst all of that uncertainty was also a key priority for you and all, almost like almost uh, definitely still is as well. Yes, but, um what I found really interesting was I um, I closed our office earlier than the government, that, uh, either a week or 10 days, I forget. Um, and what I, I found interesting within that were there were some members of my team who, <laughs> I mean, this kind of disobeyed my closure of the office and kept going to the office. Um, and I felt that it was quite a dangerous situation for them to be coming in on public transport and going mm. to an office. But they clearly had different priorities and felt that the socialization and the distinction between home and work was of more importance to them uh, than than uh, um, uh, mixing with people who might have had the virus. So that then immediately showed there's going to be a real range of responses from the team, Mm -hmm. from people who logically got it and then people who... um, who, who felt that the socialization part of work and the community in, in physical presence was more important. So what we um, did was we put in a, a significant number of, of, if you like, coffee break Zooms because then the team was spread out right across Bristol and in fact with some people living in different parts of the country as well because they went back to their parents' houses. And we, we, um, we, we recognized that some of the people were feeling quite isolated so we had obviously our team meetings, which were all about tasks and delivery and where we at as a community that does work. But we put in more meetings than maybe I would have put in normally, recognising this socialisation need. Uh, kept them to uh, basically we put in water cool, water cooler moments mm. on Zoom immediately, and that seemed to work for the people that needed the greater levels of socialisation. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important, isn't it? Just having those moments where you enhance the human connections, even when you're sort of scattered around and leading from afar. And we've seen that that's really helped bring us closer together, even though we've worked apart at some stages. And I think um, in the early stages, when you talk about sort of those people who wanted to keep going into the office and having those human connections, I think this is where sort of the work-life balance, sort of the other side of the coin of that comes in, because as good as flexible working is for that work-life balance, sort of blurring the line between work and home life can also be a bit detrimental for others. So it isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach. And I think that sort of points us in the direction that, the future of the workplace, particularly office environments, is going to be that kind of hybrid working model, isn't it? Yes. Very fascinating. Uh, Very fascinating. uh, um, I think that working in different locations, I mean, I felt like I was a little mushroom. You know, I was working in in Mm. my my basement for a while. um, And of course, we, we were deeply concerned. I mean, we really didn't know what this black swan event was going to do to the business. Now, as it was, um, we we ended up actually becoming more profitable, and but 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 we had to do an enormous amount of work to make that happen. Um, so it seemed to, in the early days, uh, in, uh, in uh, what's the word, emphasise or support businesses which are very task focused rather than community based, mm-hmm. because of course you've lost to a, de- a degree the community based side, which is why we put those Zoom water cooler moments in, and. 
there's a real clarity around other tasks getting done. So for some of the team, that was a real fit. Um, so we, we uh, employ somebody who's got Asperger's, very open about it. Well, that really worked for that person. But for some other people who um, particularly had a, a, a single parent who was at home with two children, and while she was able to navigate and work flexibly her hours, her socialization was terribly important to her. So she felt, she felt that that was a real loss. So, so, so it changed the dynamic enormously. And you could satisfy to a degree some of people's needs, but maybe not everything. And then, of course, the other thing that happened with us is we looked at, well, how do we become efficient? Because we're facing a potential very serious financial difficulty, which didn't come to pass, but in the early days, you didn't know that. And so we put in a heck of a lot of efficiency, like many, many businesses. Mm. We brought in about five years of IT um, efficiency improvements in about six weeks. Um, and I think I was reading the financial papers at the time and an awful lot of businesses were doing that very fast step change because you are facing something very difficult. So you're under pressure as well whilst trying to keep a very steady ship for the people that you work with. Exactly right. You've got to have that cool head as the leader at the top, haven't you? And I think you're so right. We've seen sort of the digital revolution accelerated maybe five, 10 years by the COVID pandemic. And the big part of that is the acceleration of flexible working patterns, as we've seen as well. And uh, I think with that, that's had a tremendous knock on effect on the property sector itself. Um, And you'll know all about that because we've seen people moving out of city centres into more rural settings where they've got a bit more space in their households to homework, as it were. And what are sort of the long-term effects of that likely to be? I can imagine the purpose of our city and town centres is certainly going to have to be rethought as part of that process. Yes. Uh, um, Now, the majority of the properties owned by the company in the portfolio, they're all city centre in Bristol. So whilst we were seeing people uh, move outside outside more to the country, to those desirable areas, what I find interesting is that and it could well be because Bristol is such a desirable city. We have a very strong uh, student population, so we, we really didn't struggle with our students lets that we've got as well. Um, everything is let. We're not, uh, and I suspect that's because of the quality of the provision. So we're not on the bottom end of the, the you know, the kind of terrible striping mattresses as, as landlords. We're at the upper quartile where we repaint every year, we refresh, you know, curtains are cleaned, you know, mm-hmm. it's a good quality provision. And it, it was quite interesting to me to see that if you provide a 75% and upper quartile product, if you like, which is good quality accommodation, even in a city centre where people are saying, hang on, there's too many people this virus, I want to go outside, you are still going to get quite high demand, even when some of the if you like enjoyable lifestyle parts of the city and Bristol, we're a real foodie place and an awful lot of restaurants temporarily shut down. So even when you're not being rewarded by living in the city, by having all these amazing places to eat, all these uh, concerts and uh, and entertainments that normally Bristol provides on a, on a weekly basis. So again, sort of having um, identifying where you sit uh, in terms of what you're delivering the better quality provision of whatever it is seems to have worked well. We, 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 we simply didn't have any vacancies. Now, we did let our students off if they didn't want to last year because students are well in advance. You, you book them six months in advance. They book mm. their accommodation six months in advance. Now, technically, we had contracts. We could have held people to it, but we communicated with all our students and said, do you want to 
be let out of this contract? And only, I think, one or two said yes. And those were relet very, really quickly. So it was quite interesting. In a year where you heard a lot about students being frustrated, we didn't see that on the ground. But it, I suspect if we had a lower quality provision, we might have seen it. You know, if the market was shrinking, it goes to the better quality generally, doesn't it? It does, yes. And of course, they don't call you the good property company for no reason at all. Exactly right. And um, I think as well, students do value that sort of human connection, don't they? That change of scenery. And I think in a desirable city such as Bristol, that's been incredibly important for them. And with sort of having had that experience, which maybe is sort of atypical to some of the norms we've seen elsewhere in the UK, as well as sort of having sort of that general crisis management period of taking your business through this quite tempestuous time, would you say that you're actually sort of stronger as a business leader and as a company as a whole for the experience you've had? And maybe you've learned an awful lot from this. Yes, I've learned quite a lot. I mean, the, the, the kind of rainbow of people's responses, of people's emotional responses was really interesting and at times tricky to navigate because you're potentially in the eye of a storm, which didn't come to pass, but looked like it was going to, doing a 16-hour day and having to navigate um, people's well-being and mental health when you're not necessarily feeling (laughs) that you've got much time yourself. Mm. Technology was really fast. And then as, as, as we just talked about proactive, again, with our other, um, if their customers, our other tenants, there was a huge amount of conversation about how tenants didn't need to pay. Now, I don't, because landlords are sometimes derided and viewed negatively, but we're providing great homes for people. So if we're doing that and you live there, then yeah, you do have to pay. But what we did there was we were very, very proactive in recognizing some people will be losing their jobs. So the team regularly sent out job bulletins. So it was kind of a yin and a yang. We would say, look, you are contractually required to pay. We're not going to be giving you a rent holiday. However, we recognize some of you guys may may have lost your jobs. And we would send out reams and reams of lists of jobs. Because, of course, other other, other parts took off, didn't they, in the economy? Mm. So, So we wanted to be of assistance but still fairly firm in our agreement. I think it is being proactive, proactive with the team, um, proactive with the customers, but also uh, potentially um, trying to view how, trying to take a step back, how long is this going to be, given that we don't know what this is, where in history can we find that information out? And I I focused on uh, 1918, the the Spanish flu, and it was just over two years. And, And actually, what are we, a year and a quarter coming? So by the time mm. it all settles down, it probably will be two years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, By the time the vaccination programme takes full effect and they're being rolled out worldwide and we've got that consideration that everybody's a lot safer in the world, then it yeah. could well be closer to two years. I think that's very, very true. So we sort of, we're, we're in a, that sort of period of limbo, aren't we, at the moment? We've taken the gamble of restrictions yeah. having gone in England. Uh, they're still in place in other parts of the uh, the UK. But globally, it's still sort of um, an accelerating issue in various parts of the world. And as we sort of enter this period, embrace its challenges and sort of hope we see the back of the pandemic before too long. Um, What are some of your future priorities going to be, Susanna, just before we wrap up? And what are you really hoping to achieve as a business maybe over the next 12 months? Um, Well, um, we we had to change. We were forced to change um, in terms of our live 
education. And so we escalated very good quality online. So a bit like other businesses, we moved, we um, we already had an online presence. As you say, we've had over a million YouTube views and we already had an online education. And we just threw ourselves into making that the highest quality possible and really upgrading that again. So it kind of pushed us almost with, you know, a foot, a foot in the small of our back. It pushed us rapidly to to a much more online presence. So what does that mean? That means instead of being a local business, we can be an, a national or an international business in terms of delivering good quality uh, education to people. So so that's really focused my mind on online. And then the other part, you, you may be surprised to hear me say this, is it, it, I've... I've I, I want, I, I've been very conscious of greater work-life balance in the last six months, mm. which as an entrepreneur, I've never really focused on before. <laughs> um, I'm just very mindful that uh, you can run your own uh, business within a much greater, with less interaction, and therefore you can make greater choices around how you live your own life. And then the third part that we've, that we've found is that because of automation and IT taking some of the kind of lower skill tasks, we ha- we really aspire to increase and upskill and bring in higher level skills for the people that we work with. So it's kind of changed the composition of the breadth of the business. So it's about kind of bringing in higher and higher skilled people, which is an interesting thing for 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 the future. So we're no longer looking at entry level. Uh, folks that we skill up, we're looking for much higher level folks that we already buy those skills from. Mm. So we've changed our composition and how we would recruit going forward, which is interesting because we wouldn't, we'd have probably sat in the same model had we not been rudely shoved off a cliff like everybody else with coronavirus. It's changed everything, hasn't it? It's really made us reflect yeah. on things and we've learned an awful lot, I would say, from this pandemic. And as you touched on before as well, I mean, I think we've also learned as business leaders to sort of value our own well-being and work-life balance because yeah. throughout this, um, it's easy when you're sort of sucked into the day-to-day world of running a business, let alone in a crisis, to sort of neglect your own yeah. mental health and be full pelt all the time. Make sure you're looking after everybody else. But it's sort of taking that time out, isn't it, to look after your own mental well-being and just for yeah. those listeners that are tuning in who do run their own businesses, like I would yeah. certainly implore you to sort of keep that in mind over the course of the year, the next few months and indeed for the rest of your working lives. Well, I, I have, I mean, from March through to September, it was 16 hours a day, seven days a week because I think when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And then it went, okay, we've put in place all of these new structures, right. Um, and I'm, I'm fortunate my son lives out in Barcelona, um, so I, I, I'm going to spend some of my life there, some of my life here, which again, um, tech has allowed, and it'll be beside the sea. So mm. it, it's then appreciating that, okay, now let's turn the dial down a little bit, not in terms of ambition, but in terms of, work-life balance it doesn't always need to come from your energy and drive it can come from the structure with which you set your business up mm-hmm. which has been quite a new learn to so you remove yourself you know, when you go and get stuff you've got to dig in there's no doubt about it and, uh, uh, but at a point you build a new structure that, that works well for life um, as well as uh, for business 
it's certainly a message for anybody tuning into this to really heed and really dwell on I think that Susanna and it's a shame that we're just about out of time on the show today because I could literally talk about this all day it's been fantastic having you joining us on the program really really thank insightful you. Really grateful. thank you yes and thank we're grateful you. for you and I wish you well Yes, really grateful for you taking your time to join us on the show, Susanna, because it's what the Leaders' Council is all about, getting those authentic voices of British business leaders out there. We couldn't do what we do without the likes of yourselves coming and joining us. So we're so, so grateful for that. And lastly, just before we do depart, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on. Yes, yes. It's going to be a good year this year and next, isn't it? You know, we're on the up. And and we just won gold in the Olympics so that's not bad is it exactly right um, we've had a good summer haven't we um, like I say European Championship finalists in the football the Olympics are now yes. in full throttle as well we've got six medals on the table yes. um, at the time of the recording this so something to focus on something that's to really it. keep that morale high yeah so keep on keep on have a lovely day and thank you very much for, for uh, allowing me to come on really appreciate it Likewise, Susanna, it was a pleasure welcoming you onto the uh, the show today. And just for the listeners, of course, on the Leaders' Council podcast, we really, really do relish bringing forward a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership forward onto the programme. And therefore, our chairman here and the former Education Secretary, Lord Blunkett, will be joining us next on the show. Um, he'll, of course, be reflecting on the events of the last 16 months with the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has affected us all for so, so long now. And he will also be talking about his hopes for the weeks and months ahead, as hopefully we enter a period of economic recovery that will be coming up on the program shortly Lord Blunkett welcome thank you very much it's very good to be with you um, well of course uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19 uh, which uh, we must touch on um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and of course whether they can receive the the grant 10,000 or 25,000 all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future but I think the second thing to say and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak Uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've 
become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity mm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? 
Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, these kind of things you you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also 
that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.